Hi, I'm Jason Wachab, founder and CEO of MindBuddyGreen, the best-selling author of Wealth, and your host for the MindBuddyGreen podcast, where I'll be bringing you deep and insightful dialogues with some of the greatest minds in wellness. If you like what you hear, please give us a five-star review, comment, and share with your friends and family. And don't forget to visit us at MindBuddyGreen.com for your daily dose of wellness. This episode is sponsored by MindBodyGreen Classes and Trainings, where you can learn from world-class experts from the comfort of your own home. The MindBodyGreen Class Library has educational programs you can't find anywhere else. From yoga and meditation to nutrition and personal growth, our classes have something for everyone. Whether you're a beginner or a wellness warrior, MindBodyGreen Classes will take you further on your wellness journey. You can find our classes at mindbodygreen.com classes. That's mindbodygreen.com slash classes. Enter the promo code podcast on checkout to receive 15% off your next purchase. Thanks and enjoy the podcast. Hi, it's Jason Wachab and welcome to the Mind Body Green podcast. And today we have the amazing Melissa Hartwig, the co-creator of like the whole 30 everything. Everything. <laughs> whole 30 everything. Whole 30 is <laughs> taking over the world. Thank you so much for coming. And you've got this Thanks. fabulous book, which we're going to talk about, Whole30 Cookbook, yeah, which just came out. Yeah, the new cookbook, yeah, we're just this week. We're going to come back to that. Well, uh -huh. thank you so much for coming. Thanks for having so, me. So everyone knows about Whole30 mm -hmm. and how that's just sweeping the globe. But I want to start back with how you got to Whole30. Mm -hmm. So we're going to go back to you growing up in New Hampshire. Yeah. And you grew up in New Hampshire, rural area. Like, talk to me about, like, you're, you're a pretty good kid. Right? Yeah. Childhood, teens. Oh, oh, yeah. You know, what were you like back then? I grew up in Nashua, which is a technically maybe even a suburb of Boston. It's like, yeah. uh, you know, 30 miles north. Um, I was the oldest of two. My sister and I are still really close. My parents were married. My mom stayed home with us. My dad worked. So it was a really total traditional. Total nuclear white picket total, fence. Yep, exactly. Total. Um, I was a giant nerd. Okay. I preferred books to people even then. So I read a ton. I studied I studied a little, but I always got like perfect grades. I remember coming home with an A minus once in like fifth grade and being so mad at that like little dash <laughs> next to the A because that wasn't <laughs> what I did. Um, so I was like the smart one and my sister was like the cute, funny one that everybody liked because I always just like went to my room and read books. Yeah, okay. that, that was kind of the label. We still kind of joke about that now. Um, always wanted to be a doctor, knew that. So I was taking oh, Latin wow. in like seventh grade uh, where, where it was offered at my school. And yeah, so that was my childhood was like really very so you're middle class. Laced, like good kid. Uh-huh. And then you get to college. And then I get to college. What yeah. happened? Um, what happened there? You know, some I kind of went through like a traumatic experience when I was 16. And that kind of changed a lot of stuff for me in terms of how... I related to my family and how I engaged with people my own age. And I think from that point on, I was kind of looking for something to take me outside of this experience. You know, my family wasn't really big at like about talking about our issues or problems. I, my mom came from this big Catholic family and it was like, if it was bad, but you didn't talk about it, it didn't exist. Were you ever able to talk about it? I, I got into therapy, but like was... I really struggled with expressing how I was feeling and, and I didn't feel like I had the support at home to talk about it. And that's just my perspective as a kid. I'm sure my parents would have been more than willing. And, you know, you go through something tough at that age and I feel like the, the urge is just to like pretend it doesn't exist. So I just sort of ate everything, like swallowed everything. And 
but I was kind of looking for something to take me outside of that experience. And I tried drinking when I was in high school and like it never settled with me. I, it never did what I wanted it to do. Um, but when I started smoking pot in I think my first experience was in high school, but then I really kind of got into it my first year of college. I was like, oh, like here I am. And so I started doing more and more drugs and a wider variety of drugs. And like I jumped into it as hard and as fast as you could imagine. So like what did pot escalate to? Oh, immediately escalate. I basically only dated drug dealers for like five years of my life and they had access to everything. So it was like, I was like a kid in a candy shop. I would it was kind of the running joke that like I would try or do anything. So, you know, I did a lot of um, halluc. I did a lot of hallucinogens. I liked those, but I really so like mushrooms, acid. mushrooms, acid, some peyote once or twice, some mescaline, like whatever yeah. I could get access to. Um, I did a little bit of cocaine, but I didn't love it. When I found heroin, I really liked that, and I did a lot of ecstasy. What was it about heroin? Uh, just the slow nod. Cocaine made me hyper aware of everything and I didn't want to be hyper aware and heroin just depressed everything. Like I was just like happy, but in this bubble. I mean, I wouldn't wish heroin on anyone. And then the ecstasy, I think, is what kind of messed me up the most. I did a lot of that in combination with other things. So how did that mess you up the most? Ecstasy makes you feel like nothing in your real life will ever be as good as this experience, which is true, right? It's chemically inducing this amazing, super normally stimulating experience. But every time I would come off it and remember what was happening in my real life, it just sunk me lower and lower. Like I got really depressed. Higher highs, lower lows. Yep. And eventually I could no, I no longer had real emotion. The only emotion or feeling I had were modulated by the drugs that I was doing. And it became this game of balancing. You know, I had to be up, I had to be down. I had to take something to bring me back down. And the whole time I was functioning. I did have to drop out of school because I stopped going to classes because I was kind of a mess. But I found it, I moved into Virginia to live with my dad after my parents split up. I found a job and I was functioning for the vast majority of the time I used. So were you using daily, weekly? Oh, no, no, like, hourly <laughs> oh wow yeah. so like what would a day look like yeah. for you oh I, this, it's so hard to talk about because on one aspect i want to kind of downplay it and sure. say it wasn't that bad and then the other the other side of me wants to prove to you that i was the best drug addict that ever lived like it's this weird addict thing i think but i mean i would wake up and smoke pot the second i woke up and i would figure out what i needed to take i was in therapy but mostly for drug seeking so i had all of these prescriptions i had uppers and downers and, and, you know, mellow like Valium and Xanax. And so I would take whatever I needed to take to get through my work day and take whatever I needed wow. to do to kind of calm down at night. And, um, I never drank during this time though. I never mixed. Interesting. Uh -uh. No booze. No booze with the drugs. I didn't, not even Did on my 21st birthday. Enough, or what was the... I, it never, I can't explain it other than like, thank God it never clicked with me. Right. There was nothing about it that I found appealing. So I never drank. I never mixed the two, which I'm grateful for, I think. Wow. But yeah, I was high literally all day, every so you, day. So you leave school, you have to leave school, you go to live with your dad in Virginia, and you're yeah. still using. Yes. And so... Yeah, I just found a new drug dealer boyfriend down there. So <laughs> Yeah, literally within like a week or two, I found the guy who was the heroin dealer down there. And yeah. so how, how many years does this last for? It's, I used about for about four years. Wow. Nonstop, yeah. So when did you hit the point that rock bottom, so to speak, or was there a rock bottom for you? Oh, uh, yeah, there always or, is. Or were there I, numerous rock bottoms? Or 
I bounced between my mom. My parents split when I was in college, and uh, that was the excuse I used when I dropped out of school was, oh, my parents split, and I was very upset because I didn't want anyone to know about my drug problem. But I bounced between households when my dad and his wife kind of got suspicious about some of my behavior, I just moved back to New Hampshire. And when I moved back to New Hampshire, I stayed with my mom for a little while and her new husband was like, you know your daughter's on drugs, right? And my mom was like, no, no, no. You know, my mom had no experience with that. She couldn't imagine. My family doesn't, that's not my family. So I was living with a boyfriend at the time who knew that I used, and he still, you know, he used a little bit recreationally, but not to the extent that I did. And like the wheels just started falling off the bus. I became really paranoid. I had started having panic attacks. I couldn't go to work. I couldn't be out in public. Like it just, there's only so long that you can chemically modulate before it just all starts falling apart. I was in therapy, but continued to drug seek. And at one point my boyfriend just said to me, like, you're an effing mess and I can't do this anymore with you. I'd really put him through a lot. And he said, we're either going to check you into rehab. Like I'm going to call a place tonight or I'm leaving. And I remember sitting, I was sitting on the couch. I had just been paid my direct deposit for my two week. You know, I was living paycheck to paycheck. And I remember thinking like, he's either going to leave and I'm going to blow my entire paycheck on heroin and I will probably die. Or like, I'm going to let him make the call. And so I let him make the call. the call. He made the call. And so you go off to rehab. That night. Wow. He found a bed. There was a bed waiting that night and he was like, pack your shit, we're leaving. And I, of course, immediately was like, well, maybe tomorrow because I've got to do this and I've got to do that. And like to his credit, he was like, we're leaving right now. So they checked me in and I had to call my mom from rehab and say, hey, mom, by the way, I'm kind of using drugs and I'm kind of in rehab because I kind of have a problem. Kinda. Yeah. I mean, you know. <laughs> right. Yeah. And so you get to rehab and how long are you there for? I'm inpatient for three weeks doing the detox and the meetings and all that stuff. And I met a therapist in rehab, in the rehab unit that I ended up working with for the next like 15 years. Oh, wow. He was incredible. And I credit him with so much of my being able to stay clean. And then I got out and did an outpatient where you'd go in like three times a week for significant periods of time. And you had to go to your meetings and you had to do all this other stuff. And I did that for about six weeks. So what was it about this therapist that stuck? He, Getting it to the root or? That was what it was, okay. right? Like, A, he called me on my crap. He was the first therapist where I would sit down at his chair and like do my little song and dance. And he was like, this is bullshit. Like all of this is total BS. And so that was really important. But, you know, I realized that like I wasn't going to be able to get out of this if I just dealt with the drug stuff. I had to go all the way back to the beginning and deal with what made me use in the first place. And he was like, let's get into it. So like, how did he help you, you know? Yeah get to that place where you could talk about this and deal with it and um i think at that point a big part of it is just i was ready yeah. i knew i could not continue to use like i had this stuff going on and then i started using drugs to kind of get away from that stuff and then the drugs became the problem and then now we're dealing with the drugs being the problem and the only stuff that's left is like this you know 10 years of stuff that i hadn't dealt with i think he just not i think not allowing me to skirt around it and song and dance it like I used to and really forcing me to look at it, I think was really, really important. It was incredibly painful, but like not anywhere near as painful as what I had been doing for the last 10 years to pretend like that stuff didn't exist. You so know? the usage was way worse than the trauma? The use was worse than the... the u no, what was worse than the trauma was avoiding the trauma. It was 10 years of doing everything in my power to like pretend like it didn't happen and not worry about it and not think about it. And 
that was so much harder than actually getting into it and being like, all right, let's open the box and like see what's in there. And I, I just, I wish someone had told me that. I'm not sure I would have believed them, so, but. So when he opened the box and saw what was in there, what did you see? I saw a girl, right? Like we're talking, basically, we're talking about a few instances of sexual abuse between 14 and 16, which I've literally never talked about in my whole life. But it's, if we're going to talk about this, right, let's just get into it. I saw this like little girl who had this whole big story about what happened and did the best she could with the situation and a family who did the best they could with the situation. And, you know, I think looking back on it now, I have a lot of compassion for myself and for my family and for the people around me because, like, you you just don't know what to do in that scenario. But I had all these stories because I thought I was so grown up and I thought I had, you know, my my stuff under control. And, of course, you always feel like you caused it or contributed to it and it was your fault, especially if you have people telling you it was your fault. And so, you know, I just had to, like, get into it and try to see it from the perspective as a grown-up, but I had never addressed it. So the only way I could see it was from a 16-year-old girl's perspective, sure. which is so flawed and skewed, you know? Well, you came out the other side. Yeah. And came out pretty darn well. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so... So you get through this, and thank you for sharing that. Yeah. I think it's important, you know, I think a lot of people, as we get back to like the context of like nutrition and changing your life, like I think it's important to show people like, this is easy right? compared to other shit. And there are also a lot of similarities, yeah. which you've talked about between food there are. and usage and trauma and all these things. Right. So if, like, I think it's so important, thank you for sharing, like you can share this. It's yeah. like people at home are like, oh, I can't, you know, giving up gluten's hard. It's like, fucking really? Right. <laughs> <laughs> like, like you have right. an emotional relationship with food. Like, right. give me a fucking break. I know, but and and it feels big, but compared to other things that sure. you have been through in your life, and it, I'm not embarrassed to talk about it, and I'm certainly not ashamed to talk about it, and I don't have a hard time talking about it. But I feel a little bit like an ABC after school special. Like, if you're old enough to remember that, it's like, oh, this oh, like yeah, poor little girl that. who went through this and went through that, and then she became an addict, and like, it's a little. It just feels like a lot to talk about all at once. But like, yeah, it's my, it's my story. It's like what so, happened. So you get through this, you meet this great therapist and are, are you just out clean now? When no, you leave I was, rehab, are you out I was clean? clean for a year. I didn't okay. drink any alcohol. I didn't, um, I was smoking cigarettes while I was using because that's yeah. what you do. And I quit cigarettes, cold turkey. Like that was super easy. I didn't drink any alcohol whatsoever. I didn't use any drugs for a year. And then I found myself at a party one night with like something dripping down the back of my throat. I have no idea what happened. I really, really don't. Something about the experience of being clean and thinking to myself, like, I'm better now. I've dealt with some of my stuff. Like, I can probably handle this better. I don't know. I don't even know what I took that night. I just know that I walked into a bathroom and someone had a line on the counter and I was like, okay. Wow. It just happened. And that sent me off and running for about maybe two or three weeks. I picked up right where I left off. There is no grace period. And all by myself, I was like, this is not okay. It's not where I want to be. And I went right back into the outpatient program and went to a few meetings and got back in touch with my counselor. And I've been clean since then. Wow. So, Congratulations. Thanks. So when, been, what year was this now? This was 2000, uh, 2000. Okay. So then walk me through, how do you go from there to the, the, the evolution to Whole30? So yeah. you start right the blog. 
And walk it, me through the time, like what it, happened? Yeah, it started even before the blog. I knew that if I was going to stay clean, I had to adopt some new habits, yeah. change my friends, change my surroundings. So I moved out of the town I was in to a different town. I got a new job, which was fantastic. Um, so I, you, are you in Virginia now? I'm in or, New Hampshire. Okay, New Hampshire. I, yeah, right. I moved from Nashua to Manchester. I got a new job uh, as an administrative assistant with this great up-and-coming company. I made some new friends there. I started going to the gym. And I... I started going to the gym a lot. I was gymming two to three hours a day and I was into it, right? And everyone was saying how healthy I was. And I changed my diet to like a, you know, traditional kind of bodybuilder, like healthy diet. And, and in retrospect, it was way too much too soon. Like I was definitely replacing something with something else, but it wasn't drugs. And, and it, that exercise and stuff modulated itself very, very quickly. It was, you know, a period of time that I over-exercised and kind of over got into it. And then it sort of balanced itself out. But in getting into that and getting into healthy eating, you know, I started CrossFitting. I started writing a blog on the CrossFit Journal, which kind of morphed into my own blog. And like weirdly, in my eyes, people started following. They started, you know, (laughs) maybe it was because I dropped F-bombs all the time. Maybe it was because I wasn't afraid to tell it like it was. Um, You know, my writing was like pretty candid, but also pretty humorous. And people started following and like wondering what I was doing for workouts and wondering what I was doing for eating. And I thought I was really, really healthy. And so the blogs, things start to pick up steam. Yeah. And when does, have you met your... I met, I met Dallas, Dallas my yep. Whole30 co-founder, and, and who was my husband. Yep. I met him around that same time in about 2006 when I was CrossFitting and picking up the blog. And he became a really good friend of mine. He became kind of my like trainer. Did you meet my trainer. in the gym? Or? I met him in the gym, yeah. Okay. I met him, my kettlebell trainer. And he were really good friends. So okay. he brought Dallas down one day to do a kettlebell training with me, and we totally hit it off. And he was a physical therapist. And so he became kind of my trainer and my sort of mentor and that's this like whole health and fitness thing. And we just became really good friends for a really long time. So friends first. Oh, yeah. We were, love. we were, yes, just <laughs> friends for a really, really long time. Yeah. What's a really, really long time? Um, four years, I guess. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, three or four years. So then you start dating and then... Yeah. And then the whole thing, like, walk me through the whole... Um, You know, we were working together more and more. My blog was starting to really take off. I was running a CrossFit gym at the time and invited Dallas to kind of run it with me. We created the Whole30 together in 2009. It was like this little experiment, you know, where he was little, like, oh, little experiment. that's what it was, though. It was he and I sitting around in a gym after a really hard workout and I'm eating Thin Mints. And he's like, we should do this like squeaky clean paleo thing that Rob Wolf talks about. Like, we should just do it for 30 days. And that was how the Whole30 started. That was the first Whole30 was me just like putting down the Thin Mints in that moment and being like, all right, let's go squeaky clean. Like, yeah. I can do honor. I can do black or white. You throw something down at me, like, I can do it. That's, you know, that's the <laughs> addict in me. Like, I'm on or off sure. and I'm all in. So we went through that experiment and after it was done, it helped me identify all of the ways in which I had been using food so unhealthfully. I never would have realized that until I did the Whole30 and didn't have access to the comfort foods that I was using and didn't have access to the ways that I was using food as like punishment or reward. Like I had a really dysfunctional relationship with food, really similarly to how I used to use drugs. Yeah, talk about that a little bit. You've talked about that before, the relationship between food and addiction and the similarities. It's not that different. It's not that different. You know, the way people interact with food and the way people interact with drugs, like the idea of 
feeling out of control, over-consuming, hating yourself for it, the guilt and the shame that comes with it, the isolation of the behavior. Like, am I talking about heroin or am I talking about like candy? It's the same. And what I discovered, I never had, or I don't, I never had an eating disorder. I never restricted too much or binged or anything like that. But I definitely like, I would restrict if I felt like I needed a space, a a period of control and restrict not necessarily calorically, but from a clean food standpoint, like I'm only going to eat super squeaky clean. I'm going to really moderate my, you know, portion size. I'm going to make it perfect according to the like body for life diet or whatever I was doing at the time. And then when I was really good in the gym and kicking butt, I would reward myself with less healthy food. And, and you know, I would turn to food when I was feeling anxious or bored or lonely. And But told myself since it was like healthy food or since it was my cheat day, it was okay. Like all of this stuff came to light when I was doing my first full 30. If you had asked me, I would have said I was super, wow. duper healthy. I was the healthiest person anyone in my office knew. Right. So you do the whole 30, you, mm-hmm. the first iteration of the whole 30. Yeah. And, and, and what do you, you're like... Wow. It was, for the first time in my life, I got off the scale and out of the mirror. I had become so... I love pre- that line. Yeah. Off the scale, off the and, scale out of, and out of the mirror. mirror. I'd become so preoccupied. How I looked became the barometer for whether I was eating clean enough, exercising hard enough. I was really skinny. I got really skinny at the time. Like, health, you know, muscular, but like really, really lean. And um, it was just, it was too much. And when I did the Whole30, I had such an amazing experience and I felt much softer in my body. And I felt like not physically, but just more gentle with myself. And, and I really, it changed my relationship with food in a very profound way. And so I wanted to share my experience with people on my blog. And I remember emailing Melissa Julwan of WellFed. She was a good friend of mine. Yeah. And I was like, I did this thing and it was totally awesome. And like, I kind of want to write about it. Do you think anyone would do it? And she's like, I-, I would do it. I think someone would do it. And I'm like, all right, cool. So I threw it out on my personal blog and hundreds of people were like, I want to do this. I'll try this. And it was kind of the very beginnings of paleo. Rob Wolf was sure. talking about it. He was the one who was like, just try it for 30 days. But I put some structure around yeah. it based not, on my experience. And it's not 100% paleo Mm-mm. either. It's no. put your own spin to it. It is. Yeah, yeah it is. Um, and hundreds of people did it. And then when they reported back, this was July 2009, and they were reporting really similar experiences to the combination of what Dallas experienced and what I experienced, we were both like, oh, this, like we're onto something here, yeah. you know? When two people have a good experience, it's sure. cool. When like 100 people have a good yeah. experience and it's similar, you, you, you're kind of like, this is a thing. So this is when, do you have the idea for the book? This is when, well, we, the book came like three years later. Yep. The book came after we had been on the road traveling, doing seminars at CrossFit gyms, like three weekends a month for oh, wow. two years in a row. So you're running around the country speaking to people. Hustling, about the, talking to people about awesome. the Whole30, talking to them about healthy eating, writing the, you know, trans, I moved my blog from the personal blog over to the Whole30 blog and was writing about it on that big kind of picture website. And the first book, It Starts With Food, came when the publisher approached us and said, like, hey, you've been doing this for a while. Like, have you thought about writing a book? And we were like, oh, instead of reaching 100 people a weekend, we could reach, like, th- ideally thousands of people sure. with a book. Yeah. So you're, like, doing the book tour before the book, mm-hmm. And Dallas and I were married at this point. Okay. We got married along the way. So you're married. You yeah. fall in love. You're yeah. doing the book tour. You're living the dream. Yeah. And Husband so- and wife working together, right? <laughs> people called us, like, the paleo power couple, <laughs> right? Uh, thank goodness we didn't emphasize that aspect of what we were doing. But, yeah, we were, we were doing it. And so... The book finally comes. So yeah. you have the idea for the book. Yeah. And what were your expectations at this point? 
you know, I don't know. I thought it, so the idea of like, ooh, maybe it'll be a New York Times bestseller. Rob Wolf, Wolf's book had come out and that became a New York Times bestseller. And we were like, wow, that's like the holy grail. Yeah. But it was never, the goal was just, can we get this out there? And like, will people dig it? You know, will they read it and will it resonate and will they enjoy it? And the feedback we got from the community was really, really good, really positive. And I was psyched with that. And then like maybe four months later when it hit the New York Times list, we were like, Wow. wow, right? Like amazing. So I don't think we expected anything. And, and talk like that. about that. I remember we talked about this. You're walking down Fifth Avenue in Manhattan. Yeah. yeah. Tell, talk to us about that moment when you knew you, you were like, wow. Yeah, people started recognizing me. And I, they recognized me, I think, more than Dallas because I was more the face of the yep. program. You know, I was a lot more active. I did, I did all the writing on the blog, I was doing more social media and stuff. But yeah, I remember being in New York for something and walking down Park, it was Park, Park Ave, Avenue, middle yeah. of New York middle of the day and a woman walked by and was like are you Melissa Hartwig from Whole30 <laughs> and I was like yes <laughs> I am and she wanted to tell me about her Whole30 experience and like that had been happening but in that moment in the busiest city in the whole world where I'm not even from to just be like stopped on the street I yep. was like oh this is like a thing and I have moments like that. Has TV picked up at this point? You're starting to do TV. TV picked up like a year later. So Good Got Morning it. America Oh, wow. Called. So I love that there's like, oh, yeah. there's a gap. So it wasn't like we oh. put out the book and boom. No. It was like, you know, book was doing good. People loved it. And then whatever. So and then what it hit the, the New York Times the list. Uh, the book came out, I think, like June 2012. And then when? Did... New York Times was September 2012. And then yep. May 2013 was oh, when wow. Good Morning America called. Okay. And they literally Pick, they, they sent an email to my admin and they were like, hey, we want to do an interview. There's a lot of Whole30 stuff on Instagram. Instagram was really taking off for the Whole30 sure. account. Um, we would like to interview Dallas and Melissa about this. Um, can we come to Salt Lake City tomorrow? This is like three o'clock on like a Thursday. Right. And I get a phone At call least from they came my. To you. Yeah, they did. They <laughs> did come to us. So, yeah. And so the first national press hit in 2013 and it really took off from there. And so, and yeah. tell me about, so things are taking off, but having difficulty Ugh, in your yeah. relationship. I mean, yeah. So you what's know, that like while you're, it's all of a sudden this thing that you've worked hard yeah. and there's like, you've come so far, you've yeah. worked so so hard and you're doing this together and then part of your life isn't going so well. What, what's that like? How do you keep keep it together? I and, think there would, there would always be a dichotomy if your career was going really, really well and you were psyched about it and your marriage wasn't going so well, right? Now add the fact that your career and your marriage are like one and the same, and it's also public. So and you, you have a child, are you pregnant? Not yet. Not we don't yet. have the kid yet. Okay. No, Cl we're getting close to getting having close. the kid. Okay. Getting the timelines um, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, it it sucked. It sucked. It was we were working on our marriage, but like we had to work really, really hard. You had the combination of like some of our personal issues, and then the fact that work we were having a hard time working together. You know, we had very different working styles. I think we had different visions. I think we both had different ideas about how hard each other should be working, or maybe one of us should be working a little bit harder. And and who you know, it was a it was a struggle. And then having to do these media events and these seminars and stuff, and and having people think of us like this perfect, Paleo, oh, you guys have it all together. Right, and, right. you know, on the inside, it was kind of falling apart. And we had always said in the beginning, if the marriage suffers, like the business goes, the marriage comes first, except that it didn't. We didn't do that, right? We didn't do it. Go ahead. I think it was, I can only speak from my perspective, but like I think I knew from a really early point that like the marriage wasn't going to go. 
And I love, the, I love what I do with Whole30 so much. Like, this is not my business. This is my passion. This is my purpose. Like, this is my, this is what I was put on this earth to do. Aside from mother my child, like, this is what I'm here yeah. for. And so what was that? I remember you telling me you're on the Dr. Oz show. Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. Talk to us about that. We did. Moment. I just got, you know, Facebook does memories. And yeah. it was two years ago in October that we first appeared on the Dr. Oz show. And we have the baby at this point. He was born in 2013. Um, so because at some point for like five minutes in our relationship, we thought we were doing well enough to have a baby. And then I got pregnant in like two seconds because I'm super sure. healthy. And that's, you know, <laughs> what we did. Um but we're on the Dr. Oz show. It was right around the same time that we were meeting with publishers for the Whole30 book. So we had the idea for the, the Whole30 book, the one that came before this one. And we're talking to our agent. We're meeting with publishers. And we're on this Dr. Oz for the very first time at the same time. And also talking about how we're going to get divorced. Right? And so Dr. Oz is like, you know, walk down the street and hold hands. And we were like, all right, we, we got to do, like, do it. And we weren't separated at that point. We weren't divorced at that point. But... It was really hard. It was so hard. I, I didn't want anyone to feel like we were a fraud. And yet we were doing this business together and we were, you know, putting this program out together and we weren't really sure what was going to happen, I guess, with our marriage at that point when we were filming. I guess it was actually September when we were filming. Um, but yeah, it was, you know, it's an impossible situation. So when you're going through that, is, is any part of you worried? Like, oh shit, like... Addiction, like, is that come to mind at all? Like, am I going to fall? Like, or no. are you just, like, what's in your mind when you're going through this? Is it? Yeah, never. God. Not for a second did I think, did I worry about going back to drugs? Okay. Like, no, not a chance. I mean, I had, I've gone through, so I've done so much therapy and I've changed so much about myself. Like, I always keep it in the back of my head. Like, I always keep a, um, I'm very protective of myself in that scenario. I would never be casual around the idea of using drugs, but like it's never something that I worry about. Um, I just, at that point, I felt very personally isolated. I had separated from family and friends quite a bit because when you're going through that in your marriage, I kind of didn't want to talk about it. And I also knew that if I talked about it with them, it would be that much harder to kind of put on the front professionally. And so I felt really isolated. I felt really alone. I was really confused about what we were going to do. I was a new mom. Right. You know, my kid was you like six that. months old right. or, or maybe, now I'm trying to remember the timeline, but like, yeah, it was, it was all new and kind of a mess. And, and how do you balance it all? Well, I'll, we'll come back. I'm speeding up the timeline a bit, but yeah. how do you balance it all today being a single mom and, you know, you've written two more amazing books, yeah. New York Times bestsellers. Yeah. Like, how do you, how um, do you balance? Well, I'm a halftime mom, right? We do yeah. a week on, a week off. I have That's a lot still of help. a lot. It is, I mean, it's a lot. <laughs> when I have him, I have him, and he's mine. But I mean, we, I have help. I have a nanny who takes care of him during the day so I can work. And, you know, it, it's not, I'm not like a single mom out there struggling like other single moms are. So I want to make that perfectly clear. Um, I think my, I think A, I'm incredibly happy. I'm super happy all the time. And so that makes hap- an enormous difference. What does happiness look like for you today versus... A long time ago. Um, it looks like feeling confident that I can maintain my grace and positive outlook and motivation and faith no matter what is happening in my environment around me. I learned going through my divorce. It was a, a divorce and then an incredibly painful business split sure. that regardless of the chaos in my environment, I could be happy. So it looks... 
light and bright and sunny and I'm taking really good care of myself and putting my health and happiness first and I'm connecting with people in my life, right? Honestly and openly and authentically, friends and and family members. I'm not isolating myself. Um, I'm giving to my community, but also being really protective of like when I need time and space. It looks different than anything I've ever experienced in my life because I've never known it before. What role, what, what does faith look like for you? What role does that play? I have a really... Well, I grew up Catholic. My mom came from a big Catholic family. I went to church every day, every Sunday since I, until I was 16. I taught Sunday school. Did you really? Yeah, I wasn't yeah. Catholic though. Yeah, but. I went to Sunday school. Yeah. I, I did my communion. I did my um, confirmation. Like I did all of that. And then at some point, it was when my parents got divorced. Sure. My parents got divorced. It, my dad chose to leave. And my, they got divorced after 20 years of marriage. And my mom could no longer receive communion at the church because she was divorced, right? My mom was, she is a good, devout Catholic. And the church said, you are not worthy of receiving our most holy sacrament. And at that point, I basically gave the whole church, every church, the middle finger. How dare you, right? And so I rail against this idea that, like, I need an intermediary, to help me have a relationship with God. I am not qualified to have a relationship with God, so I need this like old guy at my church to tell me <laughs> what my relationship should be. Right. So I have developed a, over the last, I'd say six or seven years, a very close, personal, intimate relationship with God. It's just like me and God, and we talk, and I see him, and I feel him, and I, I call my mountains church when I'm outside, and I'm hiking, and I'm by myself. Those and mountains I'm, on Instagram, I, I, yeah. I follow you on Instagram, are yeah. pretty darn nice. Yes. Looks a lot right? nicer than a lot of churches. It, it, <laughs> this is where I connect. I right. think that it is. And so, but I can talk to God anywhere and anytime, and I do. And, um, you know, I, I don't know that I have a religious practice necessarily. I don't know that I have a spiritual practice. I'm not, I don't pray on a regular basis, but like, if anyone were to say, what is your relationship with God? I would say like, we're totally, we're totally tight. Got it. Right? We're tight. And he's on the whole 30. And he's, yeah. (laughs) He is at least supportive because if he wasn't, this all would not have come together the way that it has. So getting back to the book. So like, you know, if I look at the whole 30, I think it's like one of the most successful nutrition books of all time. Like it clearly is. Like you've sold like over half a million copies, I want to say, and then come out with book number two. That's a bestseller or, you know, and then this book is going to be a bestseller. It's like, you just, like, there are very few books uh, can last. You yeah. know, we see there's the diet book of the month, and it yeah. comes and goes, yeah. and then we move on to the next thing. But, right. like, the fact that Whole30 is still on the list, and it's been how many, like, it's, it's 70, been a while. 70 weeks on the New York like, Times list. You've too. got, st- like, like yeah. if I, I, I look at Atkins, South Beach. Yeah. That That's, like, the, the, the class you're in. Did you have any idea at all in this process? Like when you're talking to publishers, you like you don't understand. Right. This is going to be the best nutrition book you ever do. Oh goodness, no! Oh my goodness, no! <laughs> and it's funny because I had a meeting with my publisher yesterday, and he was like, "I have never so badly, grossly underestimated the best-selling potential of a book as I have done with the whole thirty, which I thought was so not even he." who's been in the publishing industry for decades, I think could have expected it now. And that I never think about it from that perspective. The only thing I'm thinking about is, is this book going to help my community succeed with the Whole30? Right. That's all I care about. It could be on a list or not on a list. It could be critically panned. It could be reviewed or not reviewed. It could be, is this book gonna help my community? Yep. That's it, that's all I care about. Well, I think, I think there's something to this idea of, 
doing something for the right reasons. Sure. You know, putting out something that actually like the mission is to benefit people. Yeah. And I think that yeah. people tend to usually succeed there versus I'm going to do this to just make money. To make money Sometimes or to have it be a success. Yeah. 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 Um, it feels better. I know that. <laughs> and so, so you do, you do Whole30, amazing success. And then book number two. Food Freedom Forever. That was three. For, yeah. Three. three. Well, that's the uh-huh. other thing too. You don't want to gloss over. It's like you had another book like before oh, yeah. all this. So uh-huh. like this idea, like people tend to think, I think of like, oh, overnight success. Well, that's not really true. Right. If you look at, right. you know, book number one, you are, you know, traveling the country, visiting CrossFit. Like you're doing all the work. Oh yeah. Like years have passed. Oh Like yeah. this is like five years, five, six, seven years it's in the making. It's been ma- seven years now. Seven years in the making. Yes. So it's not like, oh, whole 30. No, who I, are these people? I, know, I love it. They're everywhere. And we gave so much stuff away for free for such a long time. So we gave every, I mean, the Whole30 is still available for free. All of it, the rules, the resources, the support, like it's all free. It will always be free. So like, yeah, we, yeah, we, we put the work in. So tell me, talk to me a little bit before we move on to the cookbook about Food Freedom Forever and, yeah. and why you put that out. Um, that is the follow-up kind of to the whole 30. It's the answer to the question, okay, I did the 30 days. It really changed my life. I feel amazing. I look amazing. I, I've built new healthy habits. I have a new relationship with food. Like how do I sustain that? How do you take any short-term dietary intervention and actually turn it into a lifetime of healthy habits? Because that's the part that is always missing. Anyone can do any diet for sure. a week or 30 sure. days or whatever, but like, how do you make it actually stick? So how do you do that? Well, <laughs> I, it's the book that I am the most closely connected to. I, interesting, I mean, I started writing it as we were going through our business split, after, right after we were divorced, as we were going through our business split, and... In writing about food freedom, it's not really just about food freedom. It's like freedom in general. It is like so much more big picture than just food. Freedom but, in general, the New Hampshire girl comes yeah, out. I know, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> food, yeah, live free or die, right? Exactly, yep. exactly. Um, it, but it rep- what it represents for me is something enormously beyond food. But I'm very emotionally connected to that book. And, and I think in order to find true food freedom, you have to start thinking about it from the very, very beginning, totally different than anything you've ever done. You can't think about the Whole30 as a diet. You can't come into it with the idea that there's a beginning and an end. You can't come into it with the idea that you're going to restrict, restrict, and then at the end of it, you'll be able to go back to the way you were eating, just totally transformed. Like, It requires an enormous amount of awareness and introspection and brutal, brutal honesty about who you know who you are and your relationship with food and how you're feeling and why you're eating certain things and and I think the process that I've outlined in that book probably feels and sounds very cumbersome in the beginning because it is so conscious and deliberate in terms of your decision making in the process but that's how any new habit starts you have to be very conscious and aware and deliberate about it until it becomes automatic so it's a lifestyle. Yeah, totally. So yeah, some, it's a long haul. Something we talked about too. So you'll have a drink occasionally. I do. And so talk to me about that and what that looks like. A lot of people who are recovering don't no. do that. And that's so. very, it's generally a very smart move. Yeah. Um, I am always very careful to say I'm clean. I don't say I'm sober. Sure. So I, I can't explain it other than my therapist and I have had a number of discussions and like, it's okay for me. And I don't know why it's okay for me and not okay for other people. Maybe it was because I never drank when I used. Maybe it's because right. I just... I don't think of alcohol in the same class. It's like I don't think of sugar in the same class as the drugs I used to do. Like it doesn't do it for me the way that drugs used to. And so I I have spent periods, years of my life, not drinking any alcohol at all just to make sure that I was on a good path. 
But yeah, now I'll totally have a glass of wine or a margarita or a martini and it's fine. Mezcal is trending. Is, it is trending. It's on our, it's yeah. on our wellness trend list. I just, my, my mom just told me that there's a liquor shortage in Salt Lake City right now, which is where I live. Are you so serious? yeah, I'm going to load up my suitcase before With I go Mezcal. back. <laughs> no. <laughs> great, great brand, Gem and Bolt. Yeah, yeah. I know them. Really yeah. good stuff. Um, but yeah, I do have a drink on occasion and. Um, and it's fine and it's fine and I enjoy it when I enjoy it and then there will be and it's very I'm very fast to say like hey, that's enough alcohol for a little while and then I'll go a couple weeks without any and that's cool too and so why why this is so important like I why we talked about addiction and food we talked about the similarities but you know when you talk about lifestyle and making change in your life there are similarities and I think it's important yeah. you know one of my favorite lines from you is you think you know quitting heroin is hard yeah. not you know drinking your coffee black is not. Yeah. Yeah. And what do you say to people who are struggling to get healthy? Yeah. Have trouble with the the food they put on their plate? I don't think I understood until maybe just a couple, I didn't understand for the first few years of the Whole30 program's existence, how much my addiction, rehabilitation, and like staying clean has been just organically grafted into the program and the support that we offer. Like it's, and so there's this dichotomy, you know, the most famous line of the whole 30 is what you just quoted. Like, this is not hard. I am asking you to drink your coffee black for 30 days. Like beating cancer is hard. Quitting heroin is hard. Birthing a baby is hard. Drinking your coffee black is not hard. And it's a, it's, meant to empower people to understand that you have done harder things than this in your lifetime, right? It's meant to kind of put it into perspective. But at the same time, the very next follow-up line in the Whole30 book is, but I know this is hard because food is so incredibly emotional. And we have these ties to food that go back to childhood. And, you know, it's, food isn't just food. It's like comfort and reward and soothing and anxiety relief and love. And it is hard and it can be hard. And the same things that I went through to get and stay clean are super duper helpful for people who are trying to change their relationship with food. The idea of adopting a growth mindset that I'm not some worthless, useless, lying, cheating addict. And I'll always be that even if I look presentable. Like, no, I'm a good person who went through really hard things and I made some tough decisions, but like I am not my decisions, right? And and the idea of changing your environment and put throwing myself into this entirely new environment that supported staying clean, you know, going to the gym, making new friends, eating healthy. I changed the music I listened to. I changed the kind of clothing really? I wore. How did you change the music? There are still, like Portishead, I don't know if you know Portishead. Yeah, Portishead equals drugs. There was a long time where I couldn't listen to Portishead because the only time I listened to them was when I was really fucked up. that's probably heroin too, like if I were to guess. Right, yeah. Yeah. Portishead isn't like a cocaine type of thing. No, no, it's, uh uh-huh. Yeah, it's ecstasy and, yeah, ecstasy and and acid together. Yeah, it's exactly (laughs) what it is. So, I mean, but this was how... So, what do you listen to now? What equals happiness? Well, I listen to Portishead now. I have a really eclectic (laughs) musical taste, but, you know, some East Coast old school hip-hop with some, like, singer-songwriter stuff and some folk stuff and a lot of electronic stuff, like a big variety, but this is how far I went to change who I was as a person and to reaffirm who I was as a person. I stopped listening to certain music. And so when people are trying to change their relationship with food, like I don't think you can go too far in setting yourself up for success and like succeeding in seeing yourself as a healthy person. Right. It makes a huge difference. And then having meals to cook yeah so we're gonna go yeah. through the the whole 30 cookbook yeah and so talk to me about how did that so to me it makes perfect sense so we got the, so we create we create the whole 30 program yeah. and then we've got the lifestyle yep. 
And now we're going to give you meals to cook. Like, yeah. So right? is that how? Was it as simple as that? It, that's kind of how it is. Okay. Yeah. How? What? What else do you guys need? This is. I stay really closely connected to my community on social media. I'm very, very personally involved, and my whole 30 team is very personally involved. And we're always like, "What do you need? What can we do? What do you need?" And because I keep my team really small, and we're very nimble, and we're very responsive, and so people were like, "I did the whole 30. It was awesome. The recipes in the whole 30 book were very, very simple. They were designed to kind of help people learn how to cook." Okay, I got that. Like, I know how to grill a chicken breast. I know how to put this together. Like, I'm getting a little bit bored. And I feel like kind of a kitchen whiz now because I'm making my own mayo and I'm making my own bone broth. Like, what else can I do? So we were like, all right, we'll give you some more awesome, really still simple, but let's throw some specialty ingredients in there. Let's like kind of kick the, you know, spices up a little bit and, and give you some more creative delicious, whole 30 compliant meals. You can cook absolutely everything in this book and you know it's 100% compliant. You don't even need to like ask about ingredients or worry about it. Nope. You just go in yep. and yep. do it. Well, the book yep. is amazing. Everyone has Thank to pick you. it up. Everyone the recipes are really good. It. They did such a good job. And so what's what's next? What's next for you? I, I can't talk about it yet, but I've got a book in mind. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. We'll, we'll have to come back for oh, that. We'll come back for okay. it. Um, it is, again... What, how, can I, how can I help you succeed? Oh, I know how I can help you. I can give you another way to like be more invested in your Whole30 experience. So yeah, we're talking about more books. Um, what I can talk about is the Whole30 coaching program that we're going to be launching oh, in 2017. So one thing that my community has been missing are boots on the ground support. They are connected to us online mm-hmm. and it's social media and it's the forum and but, and, but most people are doing the Whole30 by themselves. Sure. We did a survey and like an overwhelming majority of people who do the Whole30 don't do it with the support of family or friends or coworkers. They're like out there on their own. And that in-person social support is part of what weight makes a program like Weight Watchers so successful. Sure. It's like not awesome for losing weight and maintaining it, maybe for a lot of people that I talk to, but they love being able to go and connect with people in the group and talk and share resources. So we're going to certify people to become Whole30 coaches. Amazing. Um, all across the world. And it will be, you know, you can do seminars, you can do one-on-one coaching, you can do lead group Whole30s. And we've got some registered dietitians and naturopaths and medical doctors and fitness trainers who are going to get on board early on and start leading these small groups all across the world. So you can get that in-person social support, which is so rad. Amazing. Yeah. Amazing. So we're working on that now. That's awesome. Uh Well, thank you so much for being here. Yeah. It was always a pleasure. Thanks. And everyone, go buy the book. Check out Melissa on social media at yeah. Melissa Hartwig yeah. at Whole30. You guys are you guys are everywhere. We are everywhere. And we'll, yeah. we'll share share all that too. But thank, thank you, you so much. Thank you so I much. I always love talking to you. Oh well, great. We'll, we'll come back. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Thanks.